Welcome to Fashion Cast, the fashion industry's premier podcast where we explore all things fashion. From designers and the latest trends to sustainability and breaking fashion news, we keep you informed. Now, enjoy the show with your hosts, Michael Gloucester and me, Christine Tukta. Welcome to the latest episode of Fashion Cast with special guest Mark Pilkington, author of the acclaimed book, Retail Therapy, Why the Retail Industry is Broken and What Can Be Done to Fix It. Mark has led a distinguished career as a retail CEO and strategy consultant. He's held positions as CEO of Gossard, where he spearheaded the phenomenal worldwide success of the Wonderbra brand and KOG Group, an 850-store retailer with stores across the Middle East and North Africa. He also founded Splendor.com, the first direct-to-consumer brand, and is currently the director of MarkPilkington.net, a strategy consultancy for brands and retailers. This interview is part one of a two-part series examining the structural changes occurring in retail and their impact on the fashion industry. Mark is joining FashionCast from Dubai via Skype. Welcome to FashionCast, Mark. Hi, how are you doing? Great. So before we get address where the retail industry is today, what were its major challenges prior to the pandemic? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the crisis in retail has been brewing up for about 10 years, to be honest. When we take a step back and look at the big picture, what you've got is two channels. You've got the traditional brand retail channel, which is, uh, you know, we've all grown up with. And then you've got this new e-commerce channel. And I want to point out a couple of sort of major differences between these two channels, because I think it's important. A lot of people think that, you know, it's just a question of getting a website or something and, and that would be enough. But I think when we look at these two major points, we can see why some of the retailers got into trouble. There are two points. One is about the level of competitiveness in the channel, and the other is about the level of information in the channel. So taking the competitiveness first, the brand retail channel was a high fixed cost business. So whether you're a brand or whether you're a retailer, you had substantial assets in the form perhaps of uh, you know, brand advertising budgets, brand sales forces, uh, retail shops, all of which were very expensive things. And those created quite substantial barriers to entry. So that typically, a lot of the markets were actually quite what we would call oligopolistic. In other words, there was you know, a few competitors uh, fighting it out in that market. And although it probably felt competitive, all the competitors sort of had the same kind of cost basis and the same kind of profile. Now, if we turn to the e-commerce channel, the barriers to entry much, much lower. Um, and it, it really is characterized by a situation that we might say is almost akin to perfect competition, where there are literally thousands, if not millions of competitors uh, fighting it out um, all around the world for that consumer dollar. So you've got one market that, you know, is very, very uh, competitive, uh, the new market, and then you've got the other channel that is much less competitive. So the prices, as economic theory would uh, suggest, end up being much lower in the e-commerce channel than, than in the traditional brand retail channel. That's one factor. The second factor is the level of information um, in the channel. So uh, if we look at the level of information in the traditional brand retail channel, there's actually very little. Um, Producers, in the form of brands and, and retailers, really don't know very much about their individual customers. They may know a bit through research, um, but they basically sell a standardized product uh, using you know, mass marketing to
to lots and lots of consumers and the consumers come and buy them, but they don't really know very much about them. On the other side, the consumers uh, also don't have very much information. Um, the information they have is kind of limited uh, to the information mainly that they get from the brands and from the retailers. So the information they have is kind of not objective, really. It's coming from the people who are trying to sell them something. So the consumers have very limited information and very limited choice. Uh, now, if we uh, look then at the e-commerce channel, because of the nature of the channel, that everything happens electronically and everything is recorded, we have huge amounts of information. So the producers, the brands or, or retailers, have lots of information about their individual consumers. They know uh, what they're buying, when they're buying, whether they're new or old, and uh, they know what sort of makes them buy and what stops them buying. And, uh, you know, they can see how their advertising is working in real time at an individual consumer level. So a huge amount more information. And then on the consumer side, also the consumer has a huge amount more information. In fact, they're very close to what we'd call in economic terms perfect knowledge because they can easily go online and see through numerous sources, whether it's social media, through influencers, uh, through price comparison channels or engines or through uh, consumer reviews on Google or on Amazon. They have huge amounts of information about um, the products and they've got the ability to make up their own minds. So they're no longer sort of in the hands of the brands and the retailers regarding product information. So no hiding place for products that are not good uh, in this new system. It's a, it's a perfect information system on both sides. Okay, can we pause there for one minute? Because I yeah. think yeah. Christine and I have talked about some of this before, and, you know, it's not a perfect world, I get it, but the tsunami, the e-commerce online tsunami has been coming for 10 years, right? I mean, it was 5% yeah. of the market, mm -hmm. Christine knows, we talked now, it was then it was 15, then COVID came, it's 25. Now it's 20%, right? Yeah, yeah, it's this huge wave. And so you, I mean, you were a CEO in the retail industry. You're a consultant. You've written the book. You know about this. So why weren't CEOs at retailers around the world either beta testing this and saying, look, this thing is coming, mm -hmm. so and it, and it's not prepared. going to, let's be prepared, mm -hmm. let's prevent some of this, let's beta test it, let's buy, I mean, even Neiman Marcus, and maybe they came in too late and bought My Teresa, um, or started, I'm not sure about the, the history of it, but I mean, e even though they're in receivership, that's the last, you know, piece of whatever that's worth anything is the online. Kind of like Blockbuster <laughs> with Netflix. Yeah, so you, they weren't prepared. You can see the tsunami coming. You're standing on shore. You know you can do something about it. You don't. Now it's on. And now all of a sudden we've got this wave of bankruptcies. So I, it, it's, it's perplexing to me to know what didn't happen. Well, it, it, that's a very good point, of course. Um, I mean, what you've got just to continue the stories, you, when you think about what I've just said, so you've got one system that's got loads of information, perfect competition, low prices, uh, massive choice, and also let's add to that convenience, which is another factor. Um, it's no wonder that it was growing faster than the retail bit. So that goes on for a number of years. Uh, it seems that when it reaches around 15% of the market, you start to get serious damage to retail. Up until that point, you really didn't get that much damage to retail. I mean, it was a growing economy and, um, you know, the retailers were still growing, albeit slower than their competitors. Um, and then you look, they've got this large 
retail business that's always been there with the sort of heavy hitting heads of department concerned with their metrics. They make 90% of the company's profit. And then you've got this little e-commerce business on the side that is growing fast, but it's still insignificant and it's probably loss making. It's no wonder that the retail cultures stayed very, very strongly in the traditional camp you know, long after they should have been shifting towards a more uh, you know, e-commerce friendly culture. But it was the poor relation. It just happened too fast. It, it, uh, well, when it, the, the problem, I think this is something that a lot of people don't get. And I think even, even the retailers didn't really get it. <clears throat> They're like the captain of the Titanic. Um, <laughs> the, point, the, po- the, the point is that you don't, the Titanic didn't have to completely fill with water to sink. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, as a retailer you know we're all aware that the top 10 to 15 percent of sales represents what we call the top slice represents all the profit so you don't actually have to lose all of your business in order to go under you just lose the very top bit Mm -hmm. and by 2015-16 these retailers were starting to lose that top slice and actually it was quite a thin slice because retail has never been terribly profitable business. Um, and once you lose that top slice and you start, you run your metrics and then you've got lots of stores that are underwater and then you start closing stores and you've got the write-offs on the balance sheet um, and then you have to fire lots of people and uh, you've got the damage to brand reputation, which tends to depress sales. You're in the newspapers every day for the wrong reasons. Um, and then, you know, you've got pen- things like pension liabilities. I mean, you may have built your pension structure, you know, for when you were, you had 100,000 employees and suddenly, you know, there's only 30,000 employees left, but, you know, and you've got the profit equivalent of that, but you're, you're having to cover the pensions of 100,000 people. Suddenly, you know, you wake up one day and you realize, actually, it's not worth anything. Or, as you say, the only bit that is worth something is the data, which can be, you know, spun into a low cost uh, internet business. But the main retail bit, all those assets that you had, you call them assets, these stores in great malls, and they've all become liabilities. And suddenly, you know, it's very quick. It, 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 most of the big retailers, they only lost, you know, they had two years of six, five, 6% decline, no more than that, and they were gone. Wow, yeah, and it's, you mentioned culture. I mean, that's probably a lot of it. And then you've got these legacy costs that just hang on and hang on and it's it can be the pensions it can be the technology legacy it can be the real estate legacy but i kind of see it as a pulsar this little thing that has all this gravity this little teeny you know ball of gravity and it's it's just eating the massive giant star next to it you know that's that's kind of what i'm seeing happen and so his i you know i don't i didn't know we were going to go down this rabbit hole but it is kind of interesting to to maybe just go one step further and say, okay, now we've, we're, we're essentially still in the middle of COVID. Um, you know, we have all kinds of problems uh, vaccinating people here and all that good stuff. So this could go on for a while. Have you seen other than bankruptcies and receiverships and closings, have, has anyone learned anything? Is anybody pivoting, you know, to online in a big, big way? Yeah. I mean, you've got, uh, usually it's the ones that started working on it from like 2014, 15. Um, I mean, you know, Walmart, uh, Best Buy, Target. Um, 
Uh, I mean, Marks and Spencers in the UK has just bought uh, Ocado, which is a big online food company. Um, I, I think that there are some of the retailers that are genuinely now uh, trying to pivot. And some of them are getting some traction. They're getting some success. Among the brands, we see Nike. Nike's got a very interesting uh, direct-to-consumer strategy. You know, they started in, you know, back in 2017 to, to push that ahead of the crisis. Um, so I think the early movers have actually made, they've actually got some traction with it. Well, didn't we just, we just had like the world's foremost shoe curator on the show. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about Nike and it's, I think you can, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought you could, there's some program where you can actually design your own shoe with Nike. That's how close they are to the customer. You can design it mm -hmm. and they help you and they give you whatever, and then you can order it and... You know, it's this um, very, very consumer kind of fed um, model. So, yeah, I think you're right about that for sure. That's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, Nike, you know, Nike, honestly, is very impressive. Uh, of course, they are, you know, probably the most powerful brand in the world in many ways. Uh, but they've done, I mean, I used to work in brands and we always dreamt about being able to cut out the retailers, even <laughs> back in the day, you know. The retailers were a pain in the, in the what's it. And then, then, I, then I became one of those pain in the what's it retailers it was much nicer um but 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 you know we, we dreamt of it and um you know i think nike has embraced it they came out with a program in 2017 called uh, consumer direct defense which they li literally said by 2023 which is then i think it's about five years um we will have you know 25 30 percent of our sales direct uh, online we'll have another big chunk through our stores and then we will move from having you know, I think 5,000 customer groups worldwide to having 30 uh, because their view was that undifferentiated, mediocre retail wasn't going to survive. And so they were going to cut them off, um, which, you know, was bold. I mean, it was it's, it, it, talk about channel con managing channel conflict or, or, or whatever. That's what's held the brands back typically is they don't want to offend the retailers. That's why, you know, so few retailers have actually uh, got good, um, sorry, so few brands have actually got so uh, good uh, direct businesses. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Nike just went ahead and said, we're just going to do this. Uh, and I think it's brilliant, honestly. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, and what is the human toll of all of this? I mean, obviously there's, um, and, and it's my concern, I guess, is the speed at which it's happening. And you know, it seems the speed can be multiplied by more speed, and then you get into the supply chain issues and the manufacturing issues and robotics. And, you know, is there just a lot of people left in its wake here in terms of technology? Is that what we're looking at? Or what, or, or what is happening in terms of, you know, the human toll and then maybe the response to that by governments? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the leading wave uh, of the AI. Uh, it's the leading edge of the AI wave. Um, I think that, you know, what you're looking at is replacing shop assistants who tell you about the product with a, you know, with an automated website algorithm that tells you about the product. Um, and, you know, it takes, I think it takes a quarter of the manpower to produce, you know, a million dollars of sales online versus what it takes to, to produce the same amount through stores. 
So we're clearly seeing, you know, cannibalization of the labor force. Um, it's very unfortunate because, you know, retail is one of these areas which it's not a particularly glamorous occupation, but it does provide an income to some of the most vulnerable families, a lot of single mothers, um, young people, minorities, uh, immigrants. You know, it's not a high qualification business at the entry level. And, you know, it's one of those few jobs. A lot of the manufacturing, you know, unskilled jobs have gone. It's one of the few sort of unskilled type jobs that, you know, anyone can get. Uh, and it holds together, you know, vulnerable groups in society. So the fact that that is now also disappearing um, is very, very serious socially. Um, and although, you know, the internet jobs, there's not only fewer internet jobs, they're in different places. So the internet jobs are either in the sort of headquarters of the tech companies, which tend to be in like California or New York, or they're going to be in the warehousing sector, which will be near to the major conurbations. But the great thing about retail was that it was out there in the sticks in every small town and, yeah, sure. of, you know, you know, little, little suburb of the, of the nation. And that, that bit's all going. And it just enhances what we can already see. And I'm sure you know better than I, you know, the sort of hollowing out of middle America um, with all the consequences that we've seen from that, you know? Right, and you don't think about it from the sense that if these jobs are being mapped over to uh, more technical jobs, those people quite often are, or those jobs are only for educated folks. Yeah. So the, yeah. the typical retail job, you could have a high school, you know, degree and just get a job and whatever and be part-time mom or whatever. So that's, that's, but this isn't happening in a vacuum. It's not equal across the world. And I, I think your book points that out, that it's, it's happening faster in some areas than other areas. Um, and does that have to do with where those countries are, like third world countries, that's not happening as fast? Um, and, and do you think that this tsunami is actually going to hit them? And is it going to be faster than they think because of COVID? Yeah, I mean, COVID has sped this up everywhere. Um, I mean, I'm just in the, in the Middle East, and where I am, it's gone from 4% to 9%. So the phenomenon of COVID is the same everywhere. I mean, basically what you've got is you've got areas where there wasn't as much technology, the, um, the infrastructure wasn't there, and you have certain cultural habits like less, fewer credit cards and, you know, everyone uses cash, stuff like that. Um, and some, in some areas, you know, the women don't work. So, you know, or fewer women work. So, you know, they've got more leisure time to shop and things. So you don't have that kind of time, poor money, rich thing, um, which helped the internet, but it's happening everywhere. I mean, you know, one of the things I do is I try and warn these other countries. I go and speak at conferences and say, look guys, you know, this is coming to you within the next five years, you've got five years to sort yourselves out. Because if you wait, the problem is that retailers tend to put their heads in the sand and they, they wait until it's on top of them to try and change. And as we've seen earlier on, it's too late by then, you know, mm -hmm. there's nothing you can do. But it's, a, it's remarkable, even though I go and talk to people and I tell them and I lay it all out <laughs> with pictures and everything, they still, they still, they're still like, well, you know, this <laughs> model has served us well, you know, we've done very well over the last 30 years. And you're like, no, 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 you don't understand. You've got to do something. Don't wait. Don't wait. But you feel like you're, um, you know, crying in the dark sometimes. So those are what we call dinosaurs, right? Yeah. <laughs> they refuse to change. <laughs> they just never come around. And you're right. You've, you've met these people. I mean, Christine and I have run into so many of these people where you, you can handhold them forever 
and show them the secret sauce. But by God, if it's not their secret sauce, then they're not going down that path. Yeah, no. Yeah, really. So, really. so essentially what you're saying is there's, there's this massive change going on within the retail industry. There's going to be new jobs that spring up, are spawned off because of it, but they're primarily going to be more higher educated type positions, and they're never going to fill the factories of Bangladesh and that kind of thing again. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Bangladesh is factories. You're always going to kind of need factories, I guess, unless that changes too. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to fill the employment registers in, you know, in the middle of Ohio or in the middle of Pennsylvania or whatever. It's not going to fill the job registers because, you know, there may not be internet jobs there. Um, they may be in other places. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be quite hard for certain regions. So aren't the, you know, I guess maybe one of the good things is, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of groups and organizations that may be cheering this on because of the, the lower environmental impact, you know, related to this kind of retailing. Are you seeing that too? Are you seeing that there probably is some good news from the environmental side in terms of this? Um, or is that not the case? Am I just dreaming that? Well, I mean, I, there are arguments on both sides. I mean, you know, on one level, you can argue that the whole brand retail process is very wasteful because <clears throat> it's a push system. The brands fill up the retailers. You know, there's a lot of stock in the pipeline. The stock in all of these stores, um, most of which doesn't get sold, actually, at full price. And then they ram it down the consumer's throat by doing price cuts. Um, people end up buying things they don't really want. Uh, but because the price is low, they, 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 they consume them. A lot of stuff these days just doesn't really get worn. Get, I mean, I'm thinking clothing, but, you know, a lot of product doesn't really get used. Um, it's bought on price discount and, and, and not really used. So that push system is very wasteful. On the other hand, you know, delivering all these packages to people's homes in some respects is less efficient than having people come up, come along and pick it up from a central location. Um, you know, so there are arguments on both sides with the environment. Um, and it may be that the Internet will um, sort of segue towards a more environmentally friendly model as and when we get electric self-autonomous cars. And, um, and maybe people will stop putting packaging around all the products, uh, you can get a more like a circular type of packaging. Um, I've done a bit of work on that. Like in food, you know, you can you can sell things in reusable, you can ship things in reusable uh, packaging, and then if the person's on a subscription, you know, then the person the the deliverer comes and picks up the old, you know, washes it and then resupplies it. So there are things that may change that may. Mm make it more environmentally friendly. But it's not obvious that it is more really env environmentally friendly. In some ways, shops are better uh, for the environment. So these sustainable companies aren't so sustainable, after all, <laughs> <laughs> from, from what it well, sounds it, like. Well, nobody talks about the vast numbers of uh, landfills full of Amazon packaging. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, my house is full of Amazon packaging all the time. I have to, <laughs> every day I have to, like, uh, get out my scissors and cut the damn thing up and <laughs> in bags and... That's true. My, my wife keeps ordering it, you know, it's all, it's all for her. And it's like, 
Is this your confessional? You know, you know how it Mark? is. <laughs> is this your confessional, Mark? Is your retail <laughs> confessional <laughs> packaging? Yeah, that's interesting. She buys it. I cut. I cut up the packaging and put it in the bins. <laughs> ah, that's too funny. It's, it's, it's a mutually. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. <laughs> So has some of these companies like the Global Fashion Initiative and the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and a number of these um, NGOs, the UN Fashion, have any of them reached out to you for some consultancy in terms of circular fashion and what's going on in retail? I think it seems like you're at ground zero. They, they ought to have you on their board, I, you know, based on what you just said. <laughs> you, you have to tell them that. Yeah. We will. We will. Well. <laughs> well, I've had a couple of small uh, clients in the circular business, um, you know, wanting to know whether it's worth them persevering with it. But, uh, can you oh, still wait a minute. Okay. Yeah. So, so you've actually had people from the retail side or companies say, Hey, we're going to go down this path. Does it make sense? Okay. That's interesting. I've had some startups who are sort of a bit desperate and saying, you know, should I just uh, pack it all in? And I'm like, no, 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 it's going to be good. I think the circular thing is going to be very big. The key problem with the circular thing was that it was always too small to be interesting. I mean, you're in the States, so you probably have bigger shops than we do, but in Britain, we have all these tiny charity shops and, you know, you go in there and there's nothing you like, really. But when you agglomerate a lot more stuff together, it becomes more interesting. And that's what's happening online. People are starting to have much, much bigger websites with a lot more choice of product. So I think when you get more choice, then the circular thing becomes quite interesting. So, Mark, if you were to launch your own fashion brand today, what retail model would you use? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, well, I would, uh, first I would make it uh, um, sort of mission-led. It's not enough just to flog, as we say in England, to sell good stuff to people anymore. That doesn't really switch anybody on. Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier on, when you look at the world of the internet with the millions of competitors on there, you know, products have become a commodity, mm -hmm. really. So you've got to have something more. So, so you have to stand out. You've got to stand up. You've got to have a mission. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the very successful new brands have got missions built right into the center of their purpose, you know. Not only that they're sustainable, which has become very popular now, sustainable brands. Yeah, I think sustainability these days is the sort of uh, entry ticket. It doesn't it doesn't really mark you out anymore mm -hmm. because, you, you know, if you're not sustainable, it'd be a huge negative. Mm -hmm. But um, but but uh, it, it's I mean, it, Obviously, being sustainable is a very important part of your mission. You should be trying to do things that do no harm to the planet. Um, but it's important to try and do good or, or, to, or to have a purpose. I mean, it doesn't have to be necessarily purely charitable. I mean, I know mm -hmm. there's a very interesting brand in England called uh, Rafa Cycling. And their mission is to make cycling the top sport in the world. So they, you know, they uh, that's their mission and they, they're very involved with all the racing and, and uh, trying to clean up the sport because, of course, the sport's had a lot of problems with doping and things. So they're, they're, very, they're very passionately involved in it. From a, They all go cycling a lot. The whole company goes cycling once a week together. So that, you know, the purpose is cycling, and then they kind of sell a few things on the side. <laughs> but, um, but wait, but they're, <laughs> but they're not inviting Lance Armstrong to go along. That's what you're saying, isn't it? <laughs> well, no, no, he's, he's, yeah, he's persona non grata. But, <laughs> persona yeah. non grata. But, you know, they, they, they've got that broader purpose. And I, so I think I would definitely have a purpose. Okay. And then the next key word is, com is community. So I think the way that, you know, when I used to do brands back in the day, 
uh, our model was that we were in charge of the brand and we knew the brand and, you know, we told the brand managers what they had to do. And and then they told the consumers what they should do by, by sort of pushing their buttons with advertising and things. And then the consumers would, yeah, and they'd go and buy things. Um, that whole model is dead now. Mm-hmm. So now I think branding is more like open source software. It's like you have responsibility as the brand to curate a product area for a community. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you find a group of people who are passionate about this product or this cause and you put it together for them, but it's for them. It's not for you. It's for them. So you you listen to them. You know, you say, well, what, what products do you want? It's more of a conversation. It's interactive. What is it you want to see? Um, and you can be the enabler. You know, the brand is the curator, the enabler, the uh, mm. the sort of um, secretary of the committee. So is that community also your target market or is that community part of your mission? That was my folks? question, Michael. Oh, yeah. sorry. No. It's, I stepped on no, your boots. A, I think, I think you, you know, obviously we all use the word target market, but in itself, that's a rather cold, it's, it's come to seem rather a cold world. I think, word, I think that, you know, the, the reality of this new situation is that you have absolutely no chance of succeeding just by selling a product to somebody or just by saying, I'll target that group and I'll, I'll, I'll flog this product to them at the best price or something. That, that just, it just doesn't work. So what you have to do is you have to find some people who are interested in them. Yeah, people who are interested in your target market are the people who are passionate or could be passionate about your product group. But your job is to get them what they want mm-hmm. and to listen to what they want. So, you know, you can involve them in product development. Um, one of the roles of stores is to act as kind of uh, community clubhouses. So you you try and get people to show up. You offer benefits. So if you join the community, you can have like a, you could call it a loyalty program, but it's like a community program. So it's a higher level of, access so you get a whole bunch of things if you do this uh it may be on an app or something but but you know you you've got to give people benefits if you had stores you give them benefits in the stores like you might have a coffee house and give them free coffee or something or have drinks parties or you know have lectures or you know whatever it is that people want to hear or know about it and to bring people together to because people i know get the community involved pretty much yeah yeah COVID, COVID makes this seem a bit unlikely at the moment. Yeah, but that's true. Let's just think. Let, let's just think post-COVID. Once we're all mm-hmm. hopefully out of the outside, that people are going to want to come together and meet up, and, and even more than ever. Even more. Even, even more, more now. Wanna, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That is people so are, true. It's going to be like the ro- the Roaring Twenties. You know, it's going to be like. <laughs> I, the can't the I can't wait. I can't wait. We're all going to we're all going to go short, we're all going to go wild short dresses and uh, dance go. to jazz you know uh, so um so you know if you imagine that environment i think the idea that you know this is some of the uses of retail space which is part of the picture but it can also be online the key point is you've got to interact with the community um and you build a loyalty through uh, personalized service uh, through personalized product, through product that people actually want. Products have been kind of co-developed with with the community. Um, like Rafa, for example, you know, the Rafa guys and ladies go, all go out cycling. They actually go out cycling with the customers. They all sit and drink coffee together and talk about, you know, well, actually, I need something to wipe the sweat. You know, I need something on the glove. I need a pad on the glove to wipe the sweat off my forehead. You know, things like that. That comes out of natural conversations mm. that gives them these unique products that the customers enjoy. So 
you know, it's that engagement and listening to the community that, that gives you, it gives you the protection. You used to get protection from having big advertising budgets and big sales forces and, and stores on the, every corner. But now you have to engage with your consumers. You, you, you've got to create another, another protection. You've got to mm-hmm. give them another reason to choose you mm-hmm. other than, you know, the millions of other products that are out there. And that is all to do with making them feel uh, um, recognized as humans and, and, and as individual people. Um, and, you know, all the things you can do. And stores can be used like for education. They can be used for theater. They can be used for creating magnificent, fun things. But you can't fill them up to the gunnels with product. That, that, that doesn't really work anymore mm-hmm. because that's just replicating what you get on a website. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot more expensive to do it that way than to do it through a website. So you don't want to use your store just full of product. That, that doesn't work anymore. You've got to have it be something else. So Great mission, advice. mission, community, and then kind of like this personal co-development, engagement, personalized service. Is there another piece to this, um, you know, model? Well, I think I, I said that store, stores as clubhouses uh, and as brand theater, uh, online for transactions. I think I would probably do most of my transactions online because it's just too expensive using the stores uh filling stores with products so i'd have lots of screens in the stores with all the products on them and of course i'd have a great website and very fast free delivery but i'd probably do most of my transactions through the website and aim to use the store for something else to to sort of have fun and um that's interesting yeah i was talking to the to the marketing manager of rafa she came from burberry uh so she'd worked with angela rns who i I don't know if you know angela and she's one of the she did the Apple stores, uh, so she's one of the uh, heroes of the, of the movement. You know the the new retail. So um, you know she came from a very good background. But she when she worked, when she went to Rafa, she said the first thing I noticed as a retailer was that the, half the store was being used as a coffee house, and it only it only contributed five percent of the sales. So she said she said I said to the owner, look, you know we shouldn't be doing this, you know, uh, and then she said after three or four weeks I realised that I was completely wrong because I saw all the people, all the cyclists coming in, having the coffees, having the free coffees and planning their trips and talking to the Rafa people about products and things. And that, and then she realized, no, no, this is, this is it. This is, this is the, almost the soul. This is the soul of the brand. And 80% of their sales are online. Oh, wow. Brilliant. Yeah. Is that what you consider omni-channel where you have these multiple yeah. channels? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is great. It, 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 yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, omnichannel. Yeah, omnichannel. People talk about omnichannel, but I think people, a lot of retailers talk about omnichannel as if all the channels were equal. Uh, they don't really mind how they transact, which is fine. But actually, some of the channels are better for one thing and some of the channels are better for other things. You know, the online bit is really fantastic at transacting. I mean, you know, there is no store in the world that will give you the clarity that a website will give you. You know, you go onto a website, it's got a search engine. It will take you straight, you know, try going to a department store and finding, you know, that leather strap sandal mm. that you're looking for, you know. Whereas, you know, you go to Amazon, you put in leather strap sandal, you'll get leather strap sandal. Much more convenient. And that's what people want these days, convenience. Exactly. And I can buy things on Amazon as quickly as I used to make my shopping lists. <laughs> so, so, you know, so, so, you know, because they've got all the stuff I used to buy. As a, as a man, I'm a creature of habit. So I have the things that I buy. It's always the same Colgate toothpaste or whatever. So, you know, you just put up what, what did I buy before and you click on it and it's done. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, 
you're never going to beat that in a store. Mm-hmm. So you've got to use the stores for something different, which is some of the things I've talked about. You know, you've got, you've got to have like brand theatre. So there's a thing in New York, well, it's closed down at the moment, of course, but um, called Rose Mansion, which uh, is fantastic. Uh, I spoke to the owners and it's it's a it's a wine tasting. Um, uh, it's basically a, I suppose you'd say it's a bar, really. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a it's a it's a wine tasting place. But it's got all these experiential stages. So you pay, I don't know, $30 or $40 and you get six glasses of rosé at different stages. But you go through these different rooms and there's all these experiences related Mm -hmm. to wine. It's like a a living museum of wine. And at the end, there's a a great wine bar. And, of course, it's a big part. It's a huge party. Um, (laughs) And and, and, and that's that's a great use of, of space because, you know, what you're doing is you're taking that sort of, We've all been on wine tours where they, they you know, wax lyrical about, you know, <laughs> the, the fermentation process and stuff like that. But that's like, that's like being in a, you know, in a math lesson at school. Um, you know, what people want is they want fun. Uh, they, they want, want the experience. They, want education. they want the experience. Yeah, they want education. They want, mm-hmm. they want to learn, but they want the experience and they mm-hmm. want fun. So that's a great model of what you can use stores for. You can, you can make them fun places to learn about your product. And there's there's a lot there's all these people doing these things called exploratoriums, uh, exploratoria, which are you know a lot of them are using virtual reality. So you go into the store, you put the, you know, you put your um, Oculus Rift thing on, <laughs> and they take you on a journey, you know, um, and and that you know that sort of thing. I think we'll see a lot more of that in the future. A lot of virtual reality, you know, you'll you'll be able to go and meet, um, you know, um, who's the guy with the whiskey. Um, uh, I can't remember his name. Anyway, uh, you know the um, Tennessee sipping wh- whiskey or something. Um, <laughs> Jack, Jack yeah, but, uh, but Colonel Jack, Jack, Jack Daniel, Jack Daniel, no, and he'll give you some whiskey to taste. So you know all those kind of things. All the history of the brand can be wow. can be brought to life. You know, it can be really fun. You know. Well, this has been perfect because I think uh, for designers and creatives and people that are in the field that are listening to this show. I mean, this last segment about how to go about it and how Mark Pilkington would actually build his own brand. I think that's been invaluable on today's show. And I think we're, we're swerving in a little bit into the future and probably the next show. And we're more hopeful for the future after hearing that. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's probably, per- <laughs> yeah. That's, that's probably a perfect place to end. So Mark mm-hmm. Pilkington from Dubai, <laughs> I, I thought we were going to say England, but from, from London, Dubai. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for appearing on Fashion Cast. Well, thank you, guys. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, you're you're very well prepared. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I was saying to my friends tonight that, you know, uh, I find American journalists, you know, much better prepared, much more hardworking than their lazy British counterparts oh. do. The lazy uh, British counterparts, they, they, they probably haven't opened the book and they just say, well, isn't it awful? Isn't it awful that the high street's declining? You go, yeah. We're probably, not, yeah, we're, we're probably you know, not as polite, you, though. <laughs> no, no, you are. No, no, you're much more polite. Uh, you're, much, you're actually much more polite and much more... You're very respectful and polite, and and you've and you've read it and all that stuff. So, uh, it's been it, it's been fun, and uh, let's do the other one, the next one, and we'll do more about the solutions and. Uh, yes. You know. Yeah, we're part, looking forward part, to it. Really. Part two coming soon. Yep. Thank you, Mark. All right. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> nice to talk to you guys. You too. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us on our website 
at fashioncastpodcast.com. 